Thank you to our youth praise team for leading us today. I think what you see before you is an illustration of our sermon text today that God is faithful. Um, I hope that your heart, like mine, is bursting with thanksgiving and rejoicing in what God has done. Many of these stood before you, all of them have stood before you at some point in their lives, whether as babies or as young people. And God is doing a work, uh, not just in their hearts, but in the hearts of all of our children and youth and those ministries. So we can be thankful today uh, that God is doing that work and that he is faithful generation after generation after generation. Our scripture readings today is from the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness in your word. We thank you that your word is powerful to transform us. And so, Father, we ask for that today, that you'd be pleased to make us look a bit more like Jesus today as we leave here, that we might reflect his glory to all those around us, and that we might proclaim his love for the lost. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the storylines of the Bible is that of a faithful, changeless God pursuing a faithless, fickle people for himself. Faithfulness versus unfaithfulness. Today's passage highlights this contrast as it explores the fifth of six disputations in which God lays out an accusation and his people question the legitimacy of the charges. The first thing we see in this opening verse is that God does not change. This is the doctrine of his immutability. For I, the Lord, do not change. Here we have one of the key Bible verses that speaks of God's immutability. We use the word mutation often in the sciences to talk about something changing its form. 
But God is immutable, perfect, complete. He cannot add to or subtract from himself. There is no need for God to grow or diminish in any way. Question four of the Shorter Catechism asks, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Malachi 3.6 is one of the proof texts for this catechism question in our standards. In addition, we have a New Testament passage that's also a proof text, James chapter 1, 16 through 18, which reads, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. A particular note in both of these passages about God's immutability is that it's related to his gracious favor. This principle is critical to understand as believers. Too often we detach the big ideas about God into academic curiosities as though they're there to help us feel smart about ourselves. The theology, the study of God, is not chiefly an academic pursuit for the Christian, for God does not merely present himself in the abstract. God is relational. And studying who he is should not merely be an intellectual exercise, but rather it should deepen our relationship with him. So by way of illustration, for instance, you could say that Sharon and I are spending our lives studying one another, trying to understand one another, sometimes with more success than others. But we aren't doing this out of some sort of curiosity or even a desire to get to know the opposite sex better. No, we're in relationship with one another, and we want to deepen that relationship. The theological tentacles of God's immutability reach into many aspects of our relationship with him. And knowing and studying this truth for the believer will be a great blessing to you and will sweeten that bond that you have with your Father in heaven. Another aspect of God's faithfulness is that God keeps his promises. Look back at verse six and seven, beginning with, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. God is unchanging in his mercy, love, and grace. This is why he had not consumed them. In spite of their rebellion and disobedience, he is keeping his promises. God made a covenant of grace with his people in the garden after the fall. And that covenant was unfolded throughout the Old Testament. Adam and Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, and ultimately was fulfilled and completed in the work and person of Christ. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. He cannot change, for that would be against his nature. When the Lord sets his affection upon his people, he doesn't turn back from them. The relationship is sealed with the signet ring of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and that promise cannot be broken. I am so glad that salvation is of the Lord, that it is his choice and not mine. 
because I am fickle of heart and mind. One day I'm all in and I believe everything my heavenly father tells me and the next I'm consumed with doubt and fear, feeling unlovable. What a terror of heart and mind it would be if I had to rely upon my feelings or actions for my security in Christ. Or if God was like one of the Roman or Greek gods changing on a whim about his love for us from one day to the next. It would be unbearable. Praise God, it is all of him and none of me. And because he cannot change, I am secure in his love forever. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing not even God himself will ever change his mind about loving you. Take that to the bank, Christian. Rest in it. Relish in it. Rejoice in it. Another aspect of God's faithfulness is that God pursues those he loves. In verse seven, we read, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Some have said that the word return is the watchword of the Old Testament prophets. The New Testament equivalent is repent. When God's people run away from him, when they rebel and disobey, when they go chasing after other gods, he doesn't turn his back on us. He doesn't give us over to the darkness. He graciously calls us to return, to come home, to repent like the good shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep in the fold to seek the one that is lost, like the good father who awaits the return of the prodigal son with open arms, our heavenly father calls us to repentance. If God is convicting you of sin today, if he is calling you to repentance, don't despise that conviction. It is a mercy and a grace. The Spirit of Christ convicts you and calls you to repentance because he loves you and he's pursuing you. The most fearful thing that could happen to you is for that conviction to go away. For God to leave you alone in your sin and despair. For that would indicate that you are not his child. Our Heavenly Father disciplines those he loves. Be thankful for discipline and correction from him. Embrace it and return to him. Oh, Christian, celebrate God's faithfulness to you today. He does not change. He keeps his promises, and he pursues those he loves. God is faithful. We have a contrast in this passage. In contrast to God's faithfulness, in the next section we see that humanity is unfaithful. Verses seven through eight, we see that part of that unfaithfulness is that humanity is rebellious. But you say, how shall we return? 
God's people in their rebellion can't even see their need to repent, to return to the Lord. They speak as if to imply, so God, what's the big deal? What's the problem? How can we return to something we've never left? We're, we're all good here. We're still your people. Complacency and comfortableness with our sin is a very dangerous place to be. So God drills down with a specific, tangible, and obvious example of their rebellion that they can't deny. Tithe. In verse eight, we read the voice of God. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. God lays out the accusation that they are robbing him. And instead of looking inward in self-examination, their reaction is, as it has been throughout the Malachi's oracle, defensive. This is so typical of our fallen nature, isn't it? Humanity is defensive against the truth or correction of a holy God. It started immediately after the first sin in the garden, right? Adam, did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat of? Yes, Lord. But the woman that you gave me. Eve, is this true? Did you eat of the fruit and give it to your husband? Yes, Lord, but the serpent deceived me. And so our story goes. Isn't it true that the worst apology we can receive from someone who claims to love us is the kind that has the word but in it? I'm sorry I did that to you, but you frustrated me. Just keep those apologies to yourself. They ring hollow. They are really no apology at all, are they? We must cultivate true repentance that isn't defensive. We still sin and struggle with our fallen nature, so own it, confess it, period, unqualified, and move forward in obedience to the Lord. I would encourage you to check yourself in this area, in your relationships with your friends, with your spouse, with your children, with those that you love, most importantly, check yourself in this in your relationship with your heavenly Father. Be quick to own your shortcomings and apologize without qualifiers. Not owning up to your sin will damage those relationships and interfere with your ability to love. Humanity is cursed. God reminded the people of the Mosaic Law, which spelled out that there would be a curse on those who didn't tithe. Verse nine says, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. We know that the default position of humanity is one of being under a curse. But when God saves his people, he places them under blessing. And positionally, as we've already seen in the opening verses, God already declared that, he, that in this passage that, he will that they will never lose his favor, that they will never not be his children because he does not change in his love and his mercy toward us. Once we are his, he will never disown us. However, 
Judgment was coming upon God's people for they were in open rebellion. Their disobedience was bringing about a curse from God. So let's be clear. God is serious about sin. Sin demands judgment and disobedience has consequences. As New Testament believers, we understand that Christ became a curse for us when he hung on the tree for our sin. He received our judgment. And yet, we still struggle with sin and its effects. We've been pulled out from under the curse, but we run right back to our sin as though we live among the cursed. Paul used a lot of ink in Romans chapter six and seven talking about this strange tension he found himself in. Doing the things that he hated, sinning, and not doing the things that he loved in obedience to Christ. He culminated that passage with both frustration and security in this exclamation. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We must continually be in a mode of repentance and thanksgiving for the grace that we have continually returning to the Lord, living in the light of his blessing, not behaving as though we were still under his curse. Who are we kidding anyway? God knows our hearts. We may as well own up to these things. We only delude ourselves when we deny the need to live a repentant life. In the next set of verses, we have an unusual directive from God to test him. Here he issues a challenge in the area of tithing, Tithing, giving a tenth of your possessions to the Lord, was commanded in the Old Testament in the law of Moses. The principle, however, can be found before the Mosaic law in the stories of Abraham and Jacob as well. This wasn't considered optional for an Israelite. They were obliged to bring 10% of their possessions to the storehouses of the temple and to do it multiple times through the year. God's people were living in disobedience to him in this area. Perhaps it was because of their poverty, having come out of exile. They were just trying to eke out an existence and get back to life. Maybe they'd forgotten about the importance of this. Or maybe it was just the rebellion of their hearts. Whatever the reason, God wasn't letting them off the hook. He confronted them and said that they were robbing him in this. And as a result, were under a curse. But in his grace, He shows them a way back from this rebellion, God's test. And the test begins with obedience. We read in verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. So it would seem that they were giving to God in some measure, supporting the priest's work. But God reminds them that partial obedience is no obedience at all. They needed to fully obey and bring the full tithe to God. When God calls his people to return, he calls us first to full obedience. We tend to overcomplicate things, don't we? Perhaps even over-spiritualize or rationalize things. God calls us first 
to simple obedience, to turn from our rebellion and to return to him in faith, to believe his word and obey his commands, to stop doing this and to start doing this. Here comes the truly amazing part. In this act of obedience, that God had every right to expect of his people, he tells them to put him to the test and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. This is astounding. What an act of grace on the part of our heavenly Father. In the middle of their ungrateful little rebellion, he promises that his test brings immense blessing. The Lord stands ready to knock our socks off with spiritual and material blessing when we give back to him what was already his to begin with. What a gracious and generous God we serve. And he desires that we reflect his generous nature in our giving. We look more like Jesus when we are generous with what he's blessed us with. And in turn, he delights to further bless his people with his generosity. You've heard it said many times, you can't outgive God. Well, this passage certainly seems to support that assertion. And God's test also results in a harvest, a large return on investment, if you will. Look at verse 11. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. God promises to protect what his people sow from forces outside their control and to cause what we sow to produce. While this principle was referring to the agricultural livelihood of God's people in Malachi's day, there are also spiritual implications for us in addition to material blessing. Paul develops the same line of teaching in 2 Corinthians. Pastor Weldon looked at this principle extensively when we were studying that book not too long ago. In chapter nine, Paul says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. So one, some want to know the bottom line. Answer the question, should I tithe 10% of my income? And if I do, am I good with God? Have I met my obligation? By all means, tithe. It's a good principle and a good place to begin. But if this is where your understanding of the sowing and reaping principle stops, then you're missing out on so much more. The spiritual blessings that God stands ready to pour out upon his people are significantly more rewarding than the material ones. Listen again to some of Paul's additional words in 2 Corinthians regarding sowing and reaping. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase 
the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. And finally, we see that God's test culminates in his glory and our satisfaction. Take a look at verse 12. It's an astounding promise. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. What a wonderful promise for the people of God, the church. Again, hear the Apostle Paul's words. The saints will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. There is a beautiful connection between generosity and giving and the good news of Jesus Christ. And why wouldn't there be? After all, there is no greater expression of God's generosity than the inexpressible gift of his son for us. When we are generous in our giving, we are reflecting his generosity to a watching world. We will succeed in fulfilling the covenant given to Abraham of blessing the nations for the glory of God. It all comes back to his glory. God isn't in the business of blessing his people for our sakes. He knows that we will be disappointed and unfulfilled with that result. Our only lasting satisfaction is found in shining the light of glory on him, and he is the one that provides every means of being able to do that for his glory and our satisfaction. It's a great deal, folks. In his commentary, Walter Kaiser says, God's challenge to prove and test him is more than an academic exercise. It is the fabric of life. It is where reality is, after all. We have a practical faith that engages in our lives on every level. God has been proving himself to his people for generation after generation after generation. And there is no testimony against his faithfulness. The record is clear. God is faithful. If you're not one of God's children, then these promises of his faithfulness are not yours to claim. Certainly there are elements of common grace that everyone experiences. After all, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And it's by God's grace that the whole world isn't consumed. But if God has not called you to himself, if you have not confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and Savior, then you cannot know what it is to experience the gracious faithfulness of God. If today you hear the Spirit's calling in your heart, then respond. Call upon the name of the Lord, repent, and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation. So our passage begs the question of us. Christian, are you robbing God? Does he have all of you? Are you giving generously of your finances to him? 
Are you continually offering your body to him as a living sacrifice, as Paul tells us in Romans 12? Does he have, your, have you every day or just on Sundays? Does he have your conversation and your activities? Does he have your affection and devotion? Or are there idols out there that are vying for position on the throne of your heart? I know that some of you are feeling overwhelmed with this kind of self-evaluation. It overwhelms me too. But remember, the Christian pilgrimage is one of steps, not leaps. Step out in an act of obedience today. Sometimes we just have to stop overthinking it. Stop justifying and rationalizing or, or feeling helpless. We must get our eyes off of us and look upon Christ and him alone. God loves you so much that he wants to be generous with you. He wants you to experience the joy and fruitfulness that comes with obedience. He wants it so bad that he isn't willing to give up on you. He will remain faithful to you. And remember that Jesus has already paid the price of your disobedience. He was faithful and obedient to fulfill the covenant of grace, which we had no hope of fulfilling. He did not waver from that commitment, even though you and I have broken so many promises to him. Not only will he never fail you, not only will his love for you never change, not only does he stand there ready to receive you back if you will only return to him, but he also stands ready to pour out blessings on you that you can't even begin to imagine. Try him. He'll show up. And it will blow you away. Give to God generously in obedience to his word and see what he will do. Yes, give of your finances to him. Give of your time. Give of your talent. Give of your hospitality. Give of your love. God's generosity to us demands a response. We can say with Isaac Watts in that beloved hymn when I surveyed the wondrous cross. But that kind of love, that's a love that's so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. St. Andrews, there's gospel work to be done in the fields of righteousness. God has called us to partner with him in the work, and he invites us to test him in the matter of generosity. Let us take up the challenge and respond to God's generosity in kind and see what he will do in using us to bring him glory and to extend his kingdom both here and around the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and we repent of our unfaithfulness. Would you strengthen us with your spirit for the days ahead that we might not run to the idols of our flesh, that we might 
stay true and remain faithful to you. For we know we can only do that in the power of the Holy Spirit and through Christ who is our righteousness. Help in this, us in this, Father, for we need you. Father, give us generous spirits and generous hearts. Help us to let go of the grip that we have upon all the things that we own, upon all the passions of our life, the loves of our life. Help us to hold them loosely, that you might use them for your glory and that we might find satisfaction in that alone. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.